Thank you for joining. I'm Jeff Champion, ISACA's Ritz Professional Practices Lead. Joining me today is a very special guest, Kane McGlattery, field CISO, spokesperson, global cybersecurity, thought leader of Hyperproof. Kane is joining us today to chat about Hyperproof's recent release report, how 2023 might be the year of risk. Kane, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me on the show, Jeff. I'm super excited for today's conversation. Me as well. So to get started, we want to introduce you to our audience. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I've been in cybersecurity for, oh dear, probably 25 plus years at this point. I've, I've played every position on the field when it was available to play, um, except for we called it a tiger team back in the day instead of incident response. and. Um, and red teaming. Previously been a CISO at a defense industrial based manufacturing concern, also have run worldwide professional services in cybersecurity, have done consulting for uh, Fortune 500 Global 1000 customers. These days I mostly focus on regulatory and compliance matters because as we've seen, the uh, world is becoming more litigious, it's becoming more regulated, and that's largely in response to failures that I can probably track back about 20 plus years where administrators were recommending certain cybersecurity practices be put in place and uh, they weren't and the consequential failures are now being tried to be fixed by uh, lawmakers and by regulatory bodies. Makes sense. So um, how long have um, Hyperproof as a company been in existence? Oh shoot, actually we're fairly we're fairly new at this. Uh, let's see, my friend Matt, um, we talked about it a couple years ago so they'd been in I guess about less than five years now. Tell me a little bit more about like um, Hyperproof and what they offer. Sure, sure. So the um, probably the best way to explain it is the, the reason that I came because prior to joining Hyperproof, I was running um, advisory executive services on cybersecurity, and a lot of that involves you know this kind of services you'd expect from a, an auditor like a Big Four, for example, where. You drop in a team of individuals and they're going to do an assessment of an organization's cybersecurity maturity, and that involves a large degree of evidence collection and a large degree of um, evidence processing for both sufficiency and for adequacy to determine if the evidence that the client had produced met the requirement, whatever it was, like NIST, CSF, or CISCSC, don't care, 800-171, same difference to us. And what I found ultimately was that for internal audit teams, that is an incredibly inefficient process because it's a lot of, hey, I need to go ask the control operator, more often than not the security team, can I have a, a screenshot or can I have a log file because the auditors the internal assessment team shouldn't have access. Well, the security team's doing 11 billion other things. And so for them, the response to the auditor, the response to the assessment team, that's the lowest thing on their priority list of the day and of the year, because at the end of the year, a security professional is not going to see on their performance review, hey, they were nice to the audit team. Um, that's just not something they're incentivized on. Whereas the audit team's definitely incentivized on, hey, we need to get the audit data and we need to get it for internal, external use. The other thing that I saw realistically happening was the time spent in determination of sufficiency of a piece of proof was really laborious. Like if you think of um, control sampling for control effectiveness to assess if a given piece of proof, you know, does what it says on the tin or if there are any failures, it means people have to spend time looking at stuff. 
all this is are things that can be automated. And all of these are things that, that really will affect uh, an organization's risk posture. So the reason that I came to Hypergroup is instead of solving that the way I used to, which is basically with college interns, because um, you can get them to do it and it's cost effective, it also isn't something that really makes people think, wow, I want to go into the cybers because that was fun because I took screenshots, I asked people for things that they didn't want to give me and, and then I had to read. That just sounds boring. And we can automate all of that stuff, right? So that's why one of the reasons that I really came here because now we can have a client set all of that up and instead of all of the chasing that happens in modern auditing and assessments and all of that manual processing associated with um, effectiveness of a control, instead we can focus on what really matters, which is managing risks associated with an organization and determining that, you know, if you see a, a control is starting to go a little bit out of true, that you're able to proactively make decisions on that. But also in today's macroeconomic climate, you can look at your control set and say, which of these is not really pulling its weight anymore. If you say that a control is no longer effectively mitigating a risk as part of an overall strategy for mitigating a risk, you know what? I think that's we're now in that time where it's worth to look at those controls and say, you know, let's get rid of some of these. They're just not effective anymore. They're not meaningful. And that'll help CISOs on a longer curve manage both their strategic portfolio of risk, but also of their technology stack of things that they're responsible for. I agree. I think um, if more assessments was done in reference to controls, I think that um, it would be less breaches for sure. Definitely. Well, it, it, it's going to reduce the probability of a breach or of an incident that's material to an organization. Yeah, because when I was um, reading your article, I was looking at the piece where the orgs will be looked at differently. And so that leads into um, my next question. What do you think the orgs will look like once they make a change in um, to happen to silo um, risk management away from traditional, I guess, cybersecurity. So that's an interesting conversation piece, and I, I don't think we're yet at a right answer, but we're coming closer to one, and it's not always by choice. So historically speaking, cyber risk is magical, and it's different somehow, and I've, I've yet to understand how and why it's different and magical, but okay, let's just treat it as a special snowflake. And then we've got our enterprise risk management on the other side, and we have these two silos, and where that inevitably causes friction is around budgets, actually, which doesn't seem immediately obvious, but if a CISO is setting her budget to be associated with a certain set of risks that she's trying to manage, and the, I don't know, CEO, CFO are doing enterprise risk management, and they're not talking, the CISO is going to wonder why her budget got cut and not have context as to why it was cut because in the enterprise risk management stack, it said, well, we're doing a multinational expansion or perhaps we're reacting to market forces or perhaps we're actually contracting our business or we're doing an acquisition and that poses a higher risk which has associated budgetary and staffing. And without that level of communication with that view of an integrated risk management, view of the world, CISOs aren't able to make determinations as to what they can realistically hope to achieve within a given fiscal year. And we're starting to see regulatory bodies walk around that line. Often that comes down to the um, 
adequate independence of a CISO and their ability to actually have access to that level of information so that they can effectively manage their risk portfolio and not have it be treated as, as something completely separate. Now, I won't say, again, I won't say there's a right way to manage risk. Um, I'd say there's a wrong way, which would be stick your head in sand like an ostrich. Um, <laughs> that's just not going to produce a good result for anybody. But I think the modern organization to be effective needs to recognize that cyber risk is actually business risk. Just because you put the word cyber there doesn't make it somehow a technology thing. Your, your business will go out of business, whether it's via ransomware or your data center um, no longer being available due to natural disaster or due to workforce or you know economic conditions. All of those produce a negative consequence and a negative result. And I think that's what we need to focus on managing is those outcomes that we're trying to avoid rather than focusing on, oh, it's cyber, so it's different because it's just, it's not and at this point. So how would that affect business risk, affect the org charts? You know, that's, again, becomes an intriguing, the SEC as one of those organizations, as well as New York's um, uh, Department of Financial Services, NYDFS, um, they've both proposed rules that may have organizational chart implications for this year if those rules are actually adopted and it comes down to the concept of an adequately independent CISO and I think there's going to be a lot of weaseling around the concept of adequacy uh, and classically what we've seen is the CISO is aligned to the CIO because technology and because computers and I'm sure at some point like 10 20 years ago totally made sense that that made rational sense. Um, sometimes they're aligned with the COO, right? So the CIO's job is typically to make sure the technology is being deployed in a timely manner and also to manage their budget. And the CTO is probably developing new technologies and getting those out the door, or the COO is just trying to make sure the lights stay on and that you're operating effectively. And all of that produces an implicit conflict of interest when it comes to association of budget and staffing allocations, because if the CISO is reporting into that role, they could actually, um, first and foremost, they could have their budgets cut or budgets controlled if the other person has a higher priority and doesn't understand the value of those risks. But the other thing that those regulatory bodies are seeking to achieve is the ability of the CISO to have board level access. And that's something we're seeing a lot is the concept that the CISO needs to talk to the board about risk. Now, in a lot of organizations that I have the privilege of talking to, the CISO is already talking to the board about risk. But the continued perceived failure on the part of regulators and on the part of lawmakers is driving this conversation to say, well, we don't think enough CISOs have enough board level access. And so you have to decouple from your current management structure, maybe have a dotted line into them, but also have a direct line into the board. Um, and the other thing that that's probably going to drive and this is um, related to things like what happened with uh, Joe Sullivan over at Uber or the, C, uh, the incident over at Drizzly um, with the FTC naming and shaming a specific individual there. Um, I think we're going to see more CISOs 
Uh, at least I hope we're going to see more CISOs. Um, request to be covered on DNO, uh, that's your director and officer's policy. And, and the reason there is that if you're a CISO today and you're not covered under the DNO, you're functionally probably not an officer of the company. And what that means in practical terms is if you're at a publicly traded company and you end up having a shareholder suit come against you, and it's because you were the person who said the thing that made the decision that resulted in the outcome, which resulted into the lawsuit, you carry personal liability. And that sucks. That's really kind of a hard thing for a CISO to swallow to say, wait a second, it says C at the front of my job title there, and I don't have the responsibility to make decisions without personal liability. And so I think if we do see a um, expansion of role associated with CISO with that up-leveling, so it could be called, then we're going to similarly have that expansion of insurability associated with that role, because otherwise, who's going to really want to make that decision? Right? Who's going to want to say, well, here's our multi-million dollar budget and all of our controls are going to manage these risks, and I'm going to be at fault for that if it's wrong. Um, <laughs> a lot of people are going to sign up for that job. I mean, so cyber is already difficult enough. I don't think that adding a personal liability element to it makes it any more favorable. It doesn't. It doesn't. And um, it just makes me wonder, you know, going forward in the future, like how would, you know, how would CISOs communicate that risk? You know, would breaches become more mainstream? So CISOs, when they, when they talk about risk, um, especially to the board, and there's, there's multiple participants we talk to as a CISO about risk. We talk both um, you know, inside of the organization to our peers, the other executives, we talk to our teams, and we also talk to the board about risk. I'm going to focus my conversation specifically on the board because that's the, the big moment right now is that regulatory bodies are saying, y'all should have a conversation with the board. Okay, neat. Um, I have really three roles before going into a board conversation, and they're pretty easy. Uh, and the first one, hopefully, is not a surprise, is that you probably find that technology super interesting. If you're a CISO from a, from a technology background, it's probably cool. They don't care. Not even vaguely interested, right? Board members have a fiduciary duty to manage risk. The fact that it's technology risk, business risk, expansion risk, doesn't really matter. It's risk. That's what they get excited about. So you have to really couch it in, in terms that they get excited about. And I can guarantee you 99 times out of 100, it's not going to be technology. The other two ones are really base rules for um, any board meeting, which is try as you can to influence the outcome before you go to the meeting. Um, so that really means preparing for the meeting wherever you can, privately, one-on-one -on -one with board members. And this involves building a relationship so you can, you know, go find a coffee. Go have a 15-minute conversation with a board member prior to the meeting so you can know what you're really walking into. And ultimately, if you're making a proposal, if you have any uh, inherent level of support that you're going to have on your behalf, or if you have anyone who has a point of concern, that you can address it with them privately rather than in full board meeting. Once you move past that, I think there's been a tendency of CISOs to drown them with data and to just really show a whole bunch of charts. And it doesn't work. I think that you really have to effectively engage with the board like any other audience by telling a story, right? And that story, it really has to answer four things fundamentally. Um, what was your risk the last reporting period? And that could be last year, last quarter, last whatever, last week. Um, what's your risk level this period? How much money did you spend? And then why? 
If you can answer those questions in a narrative form, you're going to be knocking it out of the park with most board members because they're not getting that level of information. And that's really what they're interested in is like, is what you're doing effective? The how, the technology, the specific control implementation, have that in your deck as appendices, have that all as reference material, but you don't want to lead with that. You want to be able to say, look, our risk level last quarter was this. We spent this much in the risk levels now down here, right? And so show an incre increased uh, um, you know, level of spending, decreased amount of risk. On the other hand, if your amount of risk went up and your amount of spending went up, they're probably going to ask, well, why? And if you can't answer why, um, LinkedIn, I hear, is doing a booming job lately. The other thing I like to really see in board-level presentations are if the if you're planning on showing key risk indicators, KRIs, um, only show the top most important ones, really. And those have to be tied back to key performance indicators for the business. And, and this goes to the whole conversation of, you know, what should CISOs present and how we're all supposed to be more business oriented now. Um, if you haven't been tying it to business objectives, uh, again, the whole cybersecurity, information security starts to be considered, uh, it's a cost center. It's something where the your best outcome is that nothing bad happened. And if instead you can show how your effective management of risk is enabling the business and enabling an expansion and allowing them to better commit resources to other opportunities, uh, you'll be doing way better. I agree. It always seems to come down to the dollar. And, and I've been in situations I could stand up in front of the board and man, I put them to sleep. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it's funny because I think, and so the question I want to ask you, so I want to know is like, is there a particular language, like how you were saying, like, um, a language as far as when you talk to them or do you get them training? Um, what exactly would they need to, to for you to properly, you know, go to the board and present without putting them to sleep? I think ultimately brevity in board conversations is key as well as understanding the tone that they're looking for. Um, so if you're a, a CISO coming into an organization that had a former CISO, your first board meeting, you should probably have a chance to like look over what your predecessor had laid down and, and find out, so how well was that received by the board? Did they like this tone? Did they not like this tone? Was this something that, you know, should I do more of or do I need to pivot? Um, and then if you've if you're in one of those organizations that's now going to be mandated to the CISO has to go talk to the board, have a conversation with the other executives and find out, so what do your presentations look like, right? Because if we're, if we're all colleagues, if we're all equals at that level, if you're on the same level as the COO or the CFO, right? What's your deck look like? What level of detail? What are your talking points? And that should hopefully orient you to the specific nature of the organization. I think in a lot of organizations, qualitative risk is still okay. Um, I think that the exceptions for those would be the ones that we'd kind of expect which would be like your finance, your insurance, those, those very numbers heavy, they're going to actually be looking for quantitative measurements associated with risk. Um, and of course, if you're doing that, you're hopefully plumbing for that in your actual like metrics that you're collecting. Uh, and then the final thing, again, I come back to getting with board members individually wherever feasible and try stuff out on them. Say, hey, look, I'm thinking of showing this. Does this make sense to you? Like try and get one or two trusted advisors on the board who you can go talk to and find out if your message is resonating with them. And if it doesn't resonate with them, odds are you don't want to show or talk in that language that you're presenting to the individual. I definitely wouldn't because I, I thought I was cool. I came in 
I had my charts. I was using, you know, Power BI. I'm explaining. I'm going through the steps. And they were sitting. They were sitting there practically baffled. They were just like, "Oh my God." Yeah, a good friend of mine actually went to. Um, he, he wanted to show me. He said, "Look, I've made up this presentation on zero trust." And I'm like, "Cool, that's a neat technology." And like, yeah, I'm going to show it to the board next week. And I'm like, "Okay, so your resume is up to date, right?" And why? And it's 96 or so page presentation on how they were going to adopt zero trust at a transportation concern, let's say. And knowing the um, relative backgrounds of the people who were in the boardroom, I was like, so this is your swan song? Like, what you thinking about doing here? Because the idea of adopting zero trust, cool, neat idea, great, glad you're doing it. Why do they care? What is the risk that this is? Why are they wanting to spend money? Why are they wanting to approve or consent? Or is this meant to be informational? And I think that's one of those things that we have to understand with the, the needs of going in front of the board is what do they want to get out of this, right? If we're all, if, if some of us are being regulated into actually having to go have a conversation with them, what do they want? Do you actually know that? Are you just showing up to show up and throw up? Are you actually showing up to ask them a question or to get their perspective? Be ready for that level of um, uh, inspection to happen prior to your conversation with them. Because I don't think we can, like it used to be, we could show up and show, hey, look, we blocked a million things on the firewall, hooray. Nobody knew what that meant, actually, because we were all making stuff up at the time. These days, I think a lot of board members have had enough engagement with cyber professionals that that no longer carries water. And so we have to be much more intentional in our conversations. This episode of the ISACA podcast is brought to you by Hyperproof, the leading SaaS security, risk, and compliance management solution for security compliance professionals. Tired of managing security, risk, and compliance in spreadsheets? Sick of tracking down stakeholders to find evidence and spending hours manually mapping out controls to risk? Worried about whether your evidence is up to date for your next audit? Hyperproof has you covered. With Hyperproof, you can efficiently manage multiple compliance frameworks and risks in a single place so you can focus on what matters most, keeping your company secure and growing. Hyperproof can help you eliminate repetitive risk and compliance work, scale your risk and compliance management workflows, focus on mitigating the risks that matter most, complete audits and assessments with confidence, provide the risk and compliance answers leadership cares about the most. And with 70 plus out of the box frameworks, you'll stress less about adding new frameworks and scaling your business. Want to learn more? Visit hyperproof.io to get a demo today. So my next question is, is um, what are some of the actionable steps that organizations could take? Uh, I mean, far as insurance. So I think the, the, the broad narrative we're having on cyber insurance these days are that there's not going to be enough of it and it's going to cost a lot more. And I think that's it's kind of just a, it's where we are right now in the macroeconomic cycle. Um, I think the thing to look at when selecting a cyber insurance broker or when you think about cyber insurance is there's probably a couple. So the first thing that, that I usually counsel people to ask is to, um, you know, go, go to your broker, go to your dealer, whoever you're buying your cyber insurance from and say, how many other policies do you sell a month? And you want that number to be bigger than one. <laughs> Because if it's one, it means they're selling you your policy and they have no idea what they're doing. They're just making stuff up. So I'm not saying you want to go with somebody who's like peeling them off every day, regularly selling it. But people who've been selling cyber insurance regularly know what 
um, which packages are going to work well and which packages are not going to work well and which, um, which providers are going to pay out and which providers are just going to be a nuisance to try and get anything out of. The other thing is that we're seeing a recognition now of um, cyber insurance providers that certain controls are important. And while this might not be at a level that some technical professionals would consider to be great, um, we are seeing a move towards, it's kind of a, a move again towards forms and questionnaires where an insurance provider can ask, hey, do you have MFA? Because they know multi-factor authentication actually does reduce threats and reduces identity-based attacks. Or they ask if you've got EDR, endpoint detection and response, because they realize, you know, hey, if you get um, somebody's compromised identity off of a laptop, you can have a bad time. They're at least making that recognition. And if you go way out to the edge, some of the underwriters are saying, wouldn't it be neat if we could have continuous proof that they actually were doing that thing, um, that control that we asked them to do, not just have them do a one and done form or not have our, our you know, inspection team come in uh, and on Tuesday everything was working and so we sold them the insurance policy and on Wednesday we have no idea until it's the next renewal period. We're starting to see that motion um, and it's kind of like the um, you know those things you can get on your on your phone that'll measure your average car speed and how conscientious and safe of a driver you are and consequently get a discount on your auto insurance. It's kind of that same basic model here is that if you can show that an organization is continuously doing the things that they say that they were going to be doing, then they can probably get a discount or at least keep their premiums where they are uh, rather than seeing the, you know, the macro cycle that we're seeing of increasing premiums and decreased coverage associated with cyber insurance. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. That would be kind of cool having something to, to monitor the situation. Um, I always thought like, you know, from a risk management standpoint, like you were saying, like have a, th these different controls, but the visibility into the network, I, I felt like that was um, a huge piece being able to really, really have visibility on what you're looking at and, and what's being tested. Yeah, and it's it's forward thinking. I won't say that I've seen anybody particularly solve it especially well. Um, some of the best in class ones have got behind the firewall or behind the perimeter or inside the perimeter type inspection, whereas the worst ones are using like third party rating sites uh, to say how your cybers are doing. And um, more often than not, all of those third party rating sites are a nuisance that CISOs have to deal with during procurement conversations, but they don't actually refer to an actual organization's cybersecurity stance. Yeah, I would need them. If it's a third party, I'm, I'm always big on like, um, you know, some type of certification or just being able to provide proof more proof that um everything works the way it's supposed to and a trusted and a trusted third party because that'll become an issue what do you think uh, organizations could do to prepare for the upcoming for the upcoming year um upcoming year well we're already we're already in it so if you're preparing you're too late unless your fiscal starts in february at which time you're okay um in case you're watching the stream in the future this is recorded in january so we're already into the new year but i think the the things that we need to have been prepared for or to continue to prepare for are they're not really new it's more of more of an emphasis on them and there's going to be more of an emphasis on risk and there's going to be more of an emphasis on usually i like to think with the worst case scenario which might be a bleak way of looking at things but it's based on experience and they want to know who knew what when so when were you available 
to know about a risk? When was that information available? What happened to manage that risk? And who took those actions? When were they taken? Why were they taken? And that will hold up. If you've got that type of evidentiary train built into your um, whatever systems you're using for managing your risks, ultimately you're going to have a better conversation, whether that's internally with an internal assessment team or whether that's with a congressional investigation, because you can show that your business, and this is what this all comes back to, is you are doing everything reasonably possible to prevent something from happening that you didn't want to have happen. And I think that is going to, having that narrative built and conscientiously work towards continuously really is going to make it easier for businesses when something bad does happen. Because we're seeing, despite the increased amount of cyber um, spending in terms of controls, the amount of emphasis on risk, the amount of regulatory change, uh, threat actors also have monetary incentives. They want to send their kids to school. They want to have a, you know, they want to pay their rent. They probably want to pay their bills on time. Some of them, of course, you know, the whole cash and guns crowd, the you know, the one percenters. They want to do whatever that is. But I think most of that actors, like the ones who go to a government office and they drink the bad coffee and they have the you know, pension coming in the future and they look at the whiteboard all day, um, they're just doing their job, right? But they're charged with innovating new ways to work around the security controls that we're deploying. So having that awareness that, yeah, the threat actors are going to keep innovating, bad things are going to happen. And then so focus on, first of all, foremost, that narrative of we did everything we could. And the other thing you have to focus then is organizational resiliency. I don't think it's okay to think a breach will never happen. I don't think it's okay to think that, you know, this is never going to be, it, it can't happen to us, it won't happen to us, or if we do, the incident response plan is going to go perfectly. Uh, I think it's instead more necessary at this point to focus on resiliency, in some cases in compartmentalization, and then to test and train your incident response plans and procedures so that when something does happen, it's a practiced motion. It's not something that's foreign and unfamiliar for an organization to conduct an incident response because I've seen a lot of organizations that have effectively built paper tigers. You know, it looks really good on paper, their incident response plan, but you actually go to practice it and it turns out that the call tree is out of date. It refers to personnel who are no longer there and systems that are no longer there and the whole backup communication system they had planned went out of business, right? If you find yourself in that situation, you're going to have a very hard time, especially if there's lawsuits brought or shareholder suits or if there's any kind of public investigation, your company's reputation is going to be dragged through the mud if you're shown as, well, they had an incident response plan that they didn't test and they didn't do it because it didn't work and they didn't know about the risk or they didn't spend money even though they did know about the risk, right? So that's going to be where we are for this year and probably for the next while as we go through the cycle of a focus on what are your risks? What is your ability to survive those risks becoming problems and still operate your business effectively without either supply chain disruption or market disruption? Very true. So with that being said, what level of detail would you think organizations would need to attract those cybersecurity risks? Um, I think it depends on who's, who's looking at that, really. So the intent here is, again, who, what, when, uh, but also that there was a consistent process and a, a consistent cycle for making decisions based on facts that have been collected. So ultimately, like somebody like a CISO, uh, they need a dashboard. They hopefully 
they need to know that the detail is there. They need to know that there is a team that produces and analyzes the data that support the dashboard that they're looking at associated with, with risks, but they're not actually getting in there and, and mucking around with like the individual risk ratings or risk determinations or looking at control effectiveness. Um, I think that's going to go to your classic risk committee. Um, and realistically there, they need to not only see risks, they need to see that those risks are prioritized and they need to see those risks with a linked set of controls. And I'm assuming in this instance, that the risk committee and the audit committee are probably two different entities. So you've got a nice separation of duties there. Um, otherwise, there's probably some interesting ways you could do to uh, work around that and subvert the whole system. But if you've got a risk committee that is looking at how effectively a risk is being managed by its linked controls, and that data is being produced by an audit committee or an assessment committee, that actually allows you to see dynamically, like the, the risks that should be at the top of the conversation for the committee to talk about are where the control is starting to fail or has failed, or the, um, the risk is starting to run out of true. It's starting to get beyond your associated level of tolerance. Now, ideally, um, I think that wherever possible, that should really be automated. And that should be automated both, like I said at the top, for evidence collection, because the assessment committee, they probably don't have access to the tools that are actually the controls. Um, so they have to just ask the control operators, copy in a file, right? Let's just <laughs> automate that. But also wherever feasible, like let's automate the control testing, right? If, if you need to show that your password policy is, you know, this and you've got multi-factor authentication, what are you looking at? You're looking at a file. We can have a computer look at a file. This is not, this is not rocket science, right? So we can automate those tests. Now, determination of if an organization has a commitment to uh, strong information security posture, and that means that the senior board has to, and the CEO have to sign off on something, yeah, you're probably going to be doing that by hand, right? We have yet to figure out if organizational charts can be effectively plumbed by computers, though maybe it's a nice point in the future. But what it allows is our risk committee then is acting on facts and they're acting on data. They're not actually spending their time trying to go collect those or debate the legitimacy of those data and facts. And then once we've got that, that you know, effective risk register we're working with, I think, as I said, most organizations are going to be okay with qualitative data provided we agree on the definition of words. And this one kills me every time. Um, if two people have a different definition of the word high, medium, and low, your risk register breaks and it breaks for a very fundamental stupid reason that is avoidable. So when you're writing your risks down, make sure there's like somewhere noted like this is what this means like if you're saying this is a high financial risk and that means over 10 billion dollars that somebody who doesn't know that says oh this is this is gonna be 20 bucks in a case of beer that's like a high risk right because all of a sudden everything goes to high risk and your risk committee is going to be spending their time pulling their hair out going why are there so many high risks today? And you find out you've got a data entry issue because somebody didn't understand the definition of a word. Um, it's a simple one, but it's enough of an own goal that I've seen that it's just always worth making sure that that's being effectively managed. For organizations that are in that financial space, you know, you're probably looking at um, something like FAIR. Um, I think that if you can get it running, bully for you, that's awesome. I've seen a few working systems using FAIR for risk measurement and doing a actual quantitative measurement of risk. Um, I think for most organizations, if you get to qualitative, you're good enough, right? And that's, that's kind of been the truth of cyber for all these years. And 
if you're running ahead of the pack, you're probably running a little too hard. If you're running at the back of the pack, you are not running hard enough. You want to stay kind of in that nice middle. And where we are societally is qualitative is good enough for making effective decisions, provided your intelligence cycle is trustworthy and provided it's being uh, consistently followed. Definitely agree. Another question, after I was reading your article, I, was, um, want, I wanted to ask you, what other type of changes would you expect to see in the market this year? Oh boy, um, my crystal ball was broken. Um, <laughs> I think that I, I think that we're going to see some uh, continued uh, hmm. something we've had as a trend in cybersecurity, broadly speaking, is innovation out in the startup and the smaller business space, where you see these uh, interesting niche products being associated with, you know unusual cases and those tend to um historically they've been you know via public offering or via acquisition they've exited the market i think this year with the prevailing idea that hey we're all having a recession or we might have a recession or oh the recession just happened um, i think the thing we're going to see is an increased emphasis on company fundamentals for companies that are in that cybersecurity startup space right now where they're going to be pressed to produce better results faster and that an exit may no longer be actually via an acquisition and i mentioned that because historically speaking if you were a CISO and you were working with like you've got all of your MITRE attack cases covered right you've got all of your primary MITRE ones that are all of your known threat adversaries that you're working with there's been innovation enough innovation in that small startup space you might say oh wow, they do something and that's going to solve like this one edge case that we're having with a dedicated threat actor. Good for them. Let's buy their technology. Know that in two years, they're going to get acquired by, you know, one of the big four or six companies that tends to acquire these solutions. That's cool. We've already got a um, agreement with them. That's fine. Uh, I think this is the year that CISOs need to be a little more cautionary about that buyer decision to say, well, wait a second. What happens if their technology just stops? Not that it's not acquired, not that they do an IPO, but what if it just doesn't exist anymore? Is that going to be an acceptable outcome? Like, what's my backup strategy for that one? Again, that's only for niche solutions. So I think that's one of those market trends that we're going to see. The other thing I think we're going to see this year from a threat adversary perspective from your threat actors is the amount of ransomware payments has gone down remarkably in the past year. And I think what we're going to see is a lot of um, extortion based tactics. We're already starting to see a little bit of that. Um, and I don't think that's really a good business model for them. Right. Like if you think about it, let's 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 talk about um, Colonial Pipeline. For example, they happened on the it was west coast of the United States, happened last year, basically shut down, um, you know, natural gas delivery. So if you wanted to get natural gas, you were going to have a bad time because they ransomware it and they just shut the system down. Right. That was a clear reason for a payment to be made or for some agreement to be met. Um, that's the kind of scenario where you can say, well, OK, cool. There's definitely been some harm and they're probably going to get a payout. Whether it's right or wrong is not material to this conversation. Having said that, let's say instead of them hacking and ransomware in Colonial Pipeline, they release the emails. 
who has got the time to go read a whole bunch of oil executive or natural gas company emails? Who's going to actually find that to be interesting? Like maybe some reporters, maybe some like public good type people, but they're actually like, that's not an effective business model. Like unless you've got some really juicy information in there. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is in the extortion market for those companies where the EDR has effectively stopped the ransomware from happening, but has not prevented the data exfiltration. I do think that that, um, Threat actors are going to have a harder time doing extortions unless they're collecting specifically interesting um, company trade secrets, which they'll probably resell as opposed to, you know, extort to release publicly. Uh, and I think, the, you know, on a related note, the whole like, oh, we got your social security numbers, we got your, um, you know, your PII, we got your PHI. This may sound terrible, but I think people are, are unfortunately, they, they kind of have accepted that. Um, and I'm not saying that that's right, but I'm saying there's a growing public acceptance of breach fatigue where, oh, you got another breach notification letter. Okay, I guess just put that one on the pile. Um, so again, I don't think the threat actors are going to really effectively monetize that. I still think that disruption is going to be probably their primary thing. Um, the final one, actually, now that you got me thinking, my, my crystal ball eventually spun up. Um, the other one that I could see being interesting is, as we've seen a high degree of layoffs in response to the growing economic conditions, I think that companies that have planned and have already deployed data loss prevention solutions are probably going to have a better time managing their insider risk and insider threat than those that have not. And the reason I say that is if, you know, if you're at a company and you know they just did a round of layoffs, you know there's going to be a whole bunch more layoffs coming up, reductions in force, and you're a little bit on the worried side, you're probably going to go, well, I created all these good documents and I've got this good sales book of business and I created this illustration. You're going to copy it and save it on your own cloud or hard drive or email it to yourself or however you do it. Um, and that's unfortunately not legal in a lot of cases, or at least it's a breach of contract in a lot of cases that people don't get. Uh, and that is going to be a problem for companies that haven't plumbed in those data loss prevention solutions, because you don't need that six months after the employees departed. You needed that like three weeks before the employee departed, because usually that four weeks to three weeks before they think something's going to happen is where people start doing mass data exfiltration of the stuff that they thought they created that is theirs, which it's not. Um, and I think that that's going to drive probably some trade secrets getting to places that they shouldn't be. And probably some interesting, like within the sales market, some <laughs> sales folks probably keeping their books of business where they shouldn't have. And also, you know, the, just the associated lack of, um, that should be tracked as a risk uh, to businesses. And hopefully you were tracking that one already is the, the risk associated with like uh, insider risk programs and managing those effectively. Definitely makes sense. It should, they definitely should have a process in place for all these, all these different things. Yeah, this is one of those where you should have had it beforehand. Um, and that's, yeah. you know, that's that's the truth of this is that hopefully you were planning for that and this isn't news. Yes. Well, as much as I hate to end this great conversation, that's all the time we have today. If you're interested in learning about Hyperproof, please click on the link in the description below. Kane, I can't have, I, can, I, just, I just have to thank you. you. The article was brilliant. I just want to thank you. It was a pleasure interviewing you today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jeff. It's just been yeah. so much fun. I've enjoyed the conversation. And thanks, Hyperproof, as well, for sponsoring the ISACA podcast episode as well. 
But that's all the time we have. I'm Jeff Champion, podcast host extraordinaire. Thank you for tuning in.